What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, which is the recording of our live show, Anthro Alert. You can now listen at your leisure and at your convenience. If you're new here on Anthro Alert, this is where Renee and I, your hosts, and sometimes a guest, analyze, break down, and discuss different topics each week anthropologically. Enjoy. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. It's 2 o'clock Friday afternoon, a little bit gloomy, but pretty humid. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Anthro Alert. If you're new to our show, let me just take a few seconds and tell you what we do here, tell you what we're about, and if you listen to us consistently, thanks for coming back. So like I said, you're listening to Anthro Alert. This is a show about anthropology and simply why it matters. Each week we discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time we feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology here at USF um, and actually have branched out outside of USF, um, talking to some anthropologists um, across the nation to discuss their research and to have them weigh in on everyday topics and current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of an anthropological perspective. Just like every week, we like to preface our shows with the statements we make and the opinions we express here on Anthro Alert. There are opinions, uh, ours alone, and may not necessarily represent anthropology as a discipline, the USF Anthropology Department, uh, USF as an entity, or student government. And I am your co-host, Spencer. Hi, and I am Renee. And Spencer, when you say we, we are across the nation, you are, uh, yeah, we've hit all three corners of the country, uh, Las, or, or California, Santa Clara, and Wyoming, and Tampa. Yep. So we've, we've we go. got the whole country right there. We're on the big time now. <laughs> uh, so th- this week, we have two guests, and sitting in the studio now with us, we have Dr. Fairweather. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And um, do you want to just introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Okay, so my name is Dania Fairweather. I am, um, right now, I'm an educational consultant to, um, how can I even say? Okay, take a step back. I'm an educational consultant with um, a business that I started called ESC Consulting, LLC. Um, I'm also an applied anthropologist, graduate from USF Mm. Anthropology in Mm -hmm. August 2017. Okay, great. And so before we talk about um, some of the research that you've done um, in the past or currently, um, we actually wanted to talk about your your business a little bit um, since you're the first one that we've had on the show that's actually started their own business and and is running a business currently. Uh, So could you tell us about um, ESE Consulting LLC, what you guys do and how you guys got started? Sure. So ESE Consulting has been something that has been – it's been coming to birth for years, but I, I officially started in September 2019. I mean, 2017. Mm. <laughs> From the future. From the future, <laughs> all the way back to the past. Um, so 
basically, it's looking. I offer three. I focus on three areas of service. One, I offer professional developments for teachers of exceptional students. Mm-hmm. I offer a curriculum called Anthropology in Motion, which was actually came from my dissertation, mm-hmm. and it's a uh, it's a curriculum that focuses on the social and emotional development of exceptional students. And I also offer uh, parent workshops for parents of exceptional students who need to learn how to navigate the system and want to become more involved with their school with their child's school. But my main, I really just work with private and public charter schools, not traditional public schools, but private and, part of, pri- private and public charter. Okay. And predominantly also here in the Tampa area? Uh, it could be Tam- Hillsborough County, Pinellas County, and Polk County so far. Okay, so driving distance to start. Correct. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so I, I heard you mention exceptional students quite a few times there. Can you explain what that is what you mean by by that sure so exceptional student actually in hillsborough well the state of florida calls this department exceptional student education that's what ESE stands for in my business ESE mm. consulting and exceptional students encompass um gifted students students who have uh, specific learning disabilities students other health impaired um it's it's a wide spectrum of just okay. students with disabilities but the key um component there is that it also includes gifted students okay mm-hmm. so those that maybe accelerate more and then maybe those that need a little extra help correct okay so that full that full range mm-hmm. and so you said coming from your dissertation you offer another service called anthropology and motion yes um, can you explain a little bit about what that is and and how that came to be Sure. So anthropology and motion, that was, so my research focused on the exclusion of black male youth in Hillsborough County schools. And I basically did a case study where I documented their educational experiences. From that and from the suggestions of the boys that were featured in my research, um, I used that data to kind of come up with this concept of anthropology and motion, which uses, um, it focused, it uses photo voice. Right, mm-hmm. so photo voice for those who don't know is a um, a method I was traditionally used in public health, mm-hmm. where you give a marginalized community <clears throat> a, uh, a camera to take pictures um, about what their needs are in their community. So what I did instead was use cameras so the boys could answer questions about their educational experiences. So for example, a question I had was, um, "What do you consider to be an e- a roadblock for you for you to achieve in education?" And they answered that question visually. So it's using, um, anthropo- back to anthropology and motion, it's using photography, problem, and project-based learning to um, advance the social-emotional development of exceptional students, meaning, like, I'll put them on photographic investigations. They'll answer questions using photographs. we come b- back together, reconvene, and they'll develop, um, what do you call it, like little summaries about the pictures, and then we'll have an exhibit about what they mean. Okay. And so will um, will schools usually come come to you for these types of of services, or um, you know how do you how do you promote your business? How does Anthropology in Motion sort of get out to to uh, the schools that you work with? Okay, so ri- what I'm finding now is that, and like I said, I focus more on private and public charter schools. Mm. What I'm finding now is that schools are more interested in the professional development for their teachers of exceptional students. Um, so that right there is my my way to go in. After they find out what I offer, so typically I said, well, I offer. I also have something like enrichment mm-hmm. for exceptional students, and this is what I can do. This I'm bringing anthropology down to primary and secondary schools mm-hmm. for students to get these co- concepts, and I'm doing it through visual anthropology. So I um, I offer it as an add-on 
to origin to professional development. Mm. Okay, great. So I, that's a good introduction. We're gonna pause right here. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk to Dr. Fairweather. Stay tuned. Hey Bulls, thanks for coming back. You're listening to WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 16:20 m on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. We have been talking to Dr. Fairweather about her business, ESE Consulting LLC, um, about exceptional students, anthropology in motion, applied anthropology in business, and we're going to hop back in. Oh, before I get too far ahead of myself, Alex is here joining us. He was a little bit late, but he's here. But I'm here. And that's all that matters. So thanks for thanks for coming on. Of course. Okay, so let's hop back into the conversation. Um, you know, I don't... I. Personally, I don't know of very many anthropologists that have started their own business, and to me, it's a really, really interesting. Um, you know, I want to pick your brain a little bit about you know why why you really wanted to go in this direction, and so what made you want to start your business, and and how long ago, um, I guess did did the process start? Okay, well, I. I think a part of me always knew that I wanted to be a consultant. My bachelor's degree was in education, and mm. my master's degree was, I mean, my bachelor's degree was in anthropology. My master's degree was in education. Mm. And so what I found when I was doing my bachelor's degree, t- applied anthropology is supposed to solve, help alleviate problems. Sorry. Mm. Uh, supposed to help alleviate problems. Mm. So um, I knew I wanted to be a consultant of some sort. Um, when I was going through the department, um, in applied anthropology, and as I started doing my research, I tried to figure out how can I really solve these problems on the ground instead of like at the institutional level. Mm. So that would re- that's what helped me make it more applied was by focusing on turning it into a business mm-hmm. and developing a business plan. So was did you start developing that business plan as you were in your program? No, and I wish I did. <laughs> okay. I really, and I actually wish there was a class that said those of you who want to be a uh, an entrepreneur, a business, mm-hmm. as an anthropologist. Here's a class to help you develop that. Yeah, see, that's what I'm um, sort of curious about is, you know, how did you develop the skills, you know, to actually learn how to, to start a business but also keep it keep it running? Is that something you just kind of had to learn as you learn as you went and just trial and error? Or? Absolutely. They um, Believe it or not, Hillsborough County has a lot of free resources for people who want to start their own business. So I had to go... After the dissertation, I had to go on a whole nother research project and trying to figure out how to do this, but mm-hmm. and I'm still learning. And so can you tell us a little bit of that, that process that you went through? Sure. So um, I reached out to um, the Entrepreneur Collaborative Center. I believe that's in Ybor City. Um, they offer a lot of free resources for helping people who want to start business. Um, I also reached out to the business center, the Women's Business Center in um, South Tampa, and they offer um, help for women who want to begin their own business. Mm-hmm. Um, I also um, got a SCORE mentor, S-C-O-R-E, a SCORE mentor, and she kind of helps me focus on, like, the financial aspect of my business and um, uh, just, the, just the overall business plan. She really just keeps me focused on that. Mm-hmm. So I had to get mentors in that area. Right. Okay. It is like going through a whole other program. Oh, yeah. new set of advisors. Really Seriously. Yeah. Definitely. Wow. But thank you to my advisors here. Uh, uh, absolutely you know i have the theory is down pat i have the theory but really when you get out there in the world nobody really cares about theory unfortunately right but it's all about finance it's all about finance yeah i was like wait what but look i know about practice theory and you know they're like huh i'm like okay never mind (laughs) i mean can you imagine if the program itself was uh like a not an an applied program if it was 
if it was more theoretically oriented? I can't. I, 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 mean, I can't. It's, it's an applied program, and there's already, like, I feel like it's too much theory sometimes for me. Um, but there's a time and a place for There is, everything. yeah, yeah. Like, it's definitely beneficial, but sometimes I'm just like, my head's about to explode. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but that's definitely one of the things that I, I personally would have liked more is um, maybe like an entrepreneurial class or just um, like anthropology in, in unconventional situations. I think that would have been... Something like that would have been really interesting for um, for a class, but mm. uh, oh well. Ne- in, uh, in my next academic life, maybe. Right. Well, I mean, technically, we can still do it because we, as anthropologists, are really good at at asking questions and identifying problems, mm. and that's really it's closely related to business. Mm-hmm. Where you so, for example, I saw a problem within private and public charter schools. Um, now, instead of getting like jaded and discouraged, that's my typical default and becoming cynical, I was like, you know what? I really want to do something about this. I can't, you know. So that's what also prompted me to want to start this business because I really do want to help public and private charter schools. They get a bad rap, but it's really an opportunity. And so have you seen any any changes since you started your your business as far as, um, you know, I guess the problems that you had identified and and what your business is geared towards? Um, Well, it's a process. Too, too it's early too early. To it's a process. But I am getting great feedback. And also, um, there's a lot of um, professionals, multidisciplinary. Um, you know, I work with a speech therapist. I work with um, a behavioral specialist, a mental mm-hmm. health counselor. So you have professionals who are interested in, in um, collaborating and developing, um, like, for example, the parent workshops that I'm developing. Mm-hmm. They want to help. They want to do this. So it's it's a great opportunity for all academic, academics to apply their knowledge mm. to real-world situations. And so where does the anthropology come in in all of this as far as running a business and, and, and things of that nature? The theory. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, really, the, the theory. Um, it helps, too. <laughs> um, but re- just... Anthropology, one of the biggest skills I think I learned from the anthropology department and the professors is the ability to look at a situation from multiple perspectives and not holding on to one. Mm. So I'm constantly, even though some may consider that overthinking, I can see it being helpful. Okay, Mm. well, what about this and what about this? So it, it gets a lot of fun when you're in a crowd of people. Well, not a crowd, but a team of people, and you're brainstorming different solutions. You ask the problem very clearly. You state the problem, and then solutions come out, and it's fun. That's mm. when the anthropologist comes mm. out. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find that difficult, though? Because, like, anthropologists aren't always, like, super great about finding, like, concrete solutions, I feel like, sometimes, because you get into the rabbit hole of what if, what if, what if, or, like, oh, it's too complex, it depends, those kinds of things. So, like, how do you how do you control that in a business scenario in, like, an interdisciplinary team? Like, what kind of strategies do you use for that? That's a great question. Um, first, I would absolutely encourage anthropologists working with other disciplines. You have to do it because mm. it, it causes you to, to think beyond what you think you know. Mm. And um, constant communication, being able – and it's, it's kind of like with any job, being able mm-hmm. to take honest feedback. You know, you've been through the qualifying exam process. You've been through the – you know, when you, go, when you defend your dissertation, yeah, you, your feelings get hurt a little bit. So you kind of – you know how to be humble. That's, mm. one, that's another thing that you learn from – going through the process of be any kind of PhD. You learn how to be humble. The professors are very honest with you, and they'll let you know that's not working. So mm. those skills that, you know, you should learn 
going through the process can really help with business because humility is key and being mm. able to converse with people from multiple perspectives is key. Mm. That's a great piece of advice. Um, we're going to take one more short break here, and then when we come back, we're going to uh, step back a little bit and talk to Dr. Fairweather about what she did for her dissertation research, so stay tuned. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to WSF, 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for staying tuned. We're having a real interesting conversation. Dr. Fairweather has been talking to us about her business, um, what it is, how she got it started, you know, why she wanted to, to pursue um, her own consulting company. And so she has been, you know... Um, giving us some advice on on how to work as an anthropologist in a business setting and so if you missed that i apologize because there's some great advice yeah but you can probably find <laughs> it later on anthroalert.com yes because these are recorded so um stay tuned for that on our on our website and so we're just gonna rewind a little bit um from before you started your business um you're a phd student now and so you're doing your your dissertation research um can you can you tell us what what your research was about? Sure, um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but um, basically my research was about the educational experiences of black male youth in Hillsborough County. Okay, and um, so why did why did you choose to to pursue that particular topic? Oh, several reasons. Um, basically, what the que- the main question that I asked in my research was how is exclusion produced among black male youth, and what inspired me to do that is before I entered the program, um, I was a teacher in Pinellas County Mm. and I was a special ed ESC teacher as they call it. And it was just phenomenal. I mean, you know, we hear the story of black, black males going into special ed, but it was real life. And, um, I was just, I felt like I really needed to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I had that anthropology background and I also kept in touch with my professor from my undergrad at Mm -hmm. Rhode Island college. I went to school in Rhode Island college and she would just said, write field notes, write field notes about what's going on. I'm sure that's going to turn into something. So I give her a lot of credit for prompting me. Dr. Mm -hmm. Fleur Lobin, thank you. Mm -hmm. So you were already kind of, I guess, journaling your experience before you were even at, um, you know, that PhD level. Absolutely. Okay. And so I'm I'm just kind of curious. So when you go to turn those back into research, did you just have to do like retroactive like IRB or like how did you kind of work that into? Well, no, I I did not, but I kept those experiences in mind oh, okay. to so kind of refer like back to, to because okay. they were not because like I said, I was in Pinellas County. Oh, okay. So and I did my research here in Hillsborough County. Okay, so it was different, but it was just kind of setting you up for you know um, you know what what my questions might be and Correct. that kind of thing. Okay. Um, and so you talk about um, exclusion. Um, exclusion and, and what types of ways? Okay, that's a great question. Exclusion is one of those things that is very subtle. So it, you don't really see it. Um, but according to Michelle Fine in um, Framing of a Dropout, she says that exclusion is something that leads to dropping out, leads to a student dropping out of school. Mm. So exclusion is leaving out students um, in terms of like in a classroom instruction, um, in school, in different educational settings for any number of reasons. So um, in my research, I found that exclusion could be something something as simply as um, go to the back of the classroom or you can't go on a field trip or a parent comes in, you know, doesn't speak English, maybe, maybe they're Haitian, maybe they speak Creole, and they don't feel comfortable in front of 
you know, speaking to the secretary because no one speaks their language. So that family automatically feels excluded. So it's very subtle and, and it's hard to detect. So mm-hmm. that's why I wanted to look at it. And so what were some of like, okay, what am I trying to ask you? So what did you find were some of the reasons for those exclusions? Well, um, that's a great question. One of the I hate to do cause and effect. I hate right. to do, Or you I know, guess what was maybe influencing them? So I looked at several interacting forces. Okay. Let's just call it that. Mm-hmm. So I looked at um, gender, uh, masculinity, um, social class, family background, um, the hidden curriculum, and we could talk about that. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, there was something else. <laughs> I can't wait. I forgot. But um, it will come back to me. And so I looked at how these forces interacted with each other to come together and produce exclusion. So it can't just go back to one thing. Mm-hmm. So um, one primary example, you'll have a student in the classroom. The teacher's giving a social studies lesson. that has, And the student maybe didn't eat that morning. Or maybe last night their parents got into a fight and the mother had to leave. And now the teacher's talking about uh, a civics lesson about how does a president become a president. And... Do I really care about this? Mm. And you should care about this. Why? Do you know I didn't eat last night? So it's so many different things that happen, and then the teacher uses a tone that the student may be, get offended by. So that turns into a classroom disruption. The student gets kicked out, and it, it's a whole problem. Mm. So there's a whole – you have to contextualize it a little bit. Did mm. you do uh, – I assume – I guess you did interviews with the students, and how would they – did you find a difference between like these things that you would have talked about, like going to the back of the room? Did they track those things as exclusions, or was it just a thing that they felt? It was a thing that they felt, and I was very and I was very difficult to try not to put my definition, and, and you guys know as researchers, to put my input onto what they would describe. But mm-hmm. what they would describe is exclusion, mm-hmm. um, and that's another reason why I use photo voice too with mm. the youth because um, I found that I wasn't able to capture information just from traditional anthropological methods like interviewing and observation. So, for example, one of the uh, – I interviewed five – it was a five boys that I interviewed and five um, adults, educational stakeholders. And so um, one of the pictures that one of the youth took, he took a picture of his neighborhood, like gang symbols in his neighborhood, and he said something, um, this is where my brother was shot when I was seven. That same year, he was um, – suspended from school for 10 days because the teacher said he stole a library book and it turned out that he never stole it that same year he was also put into um started the process of of a 504 plan which means that they wanted they said that he had problems um in the health area that would prevent him from elevating and advancing in school so they wanted to start another kind of going towards ESE and so Putting all of that together, I was like, oh, okay, so all of this is interacting, and I would have never been able to figure that out if I hadn't had the phot- photographs, if I hadn't done photo voice, because none of that came up in the interview. Mm. And so what were the interviews with the educational stakeholders? What was, what was that piece of the puzzle? That was, that's actually what caused me to want to develop professional development for teachers. Mm. Um, I find that a lot of educators, their heart is in the right place. We want to help these students, but we're in a system, and sometimes the system is, we can only be as good as the system is, mm. and sometimes, you know, if, you know, the system is putting down this and this, and they don't treat educators as professionals, um, what happens is, is that they get discouraged and become disempowered, and as Michelle Fine says, disempowered teachers produce disempowered students, so you have a lot of teachers who want to do well and want to do good, but there's no room in a system to allow them because there's so many other factors that comes in. 
Mm-hmm. So they weren't in alignment. So basically that's what I'm saying. Well, their words were not in alignment with their actions. They'll say one thing, but from observing them and from participating in faculty meetings, that wasn't what was that wasn't was it happening. It wasn't happening. Mm. And so what were the I guess what were some of the things that were discouraging teachers or you know what what parts of the system make it difficult for teachers maybe to work at their I guess full potential okay well one of the things that I noticed is that there really wasn't enough time and resources Mm -hmm. to really understand how to reach those exceptional students typically when teachers come in teachers are taught unless you specialize in ESE or gifted teachers are taught to cater to the average student it's a spectrum right Mm -hmm. one side is gifted I'm a visual person I know they Mm -hmm. can't see it but I'm I'm drawing (laughs) it out with my hands I apologize (laughs) for everyone who can't see it Um, so on one side it's gifted students and the other side you will have like the learning disabled but then in the middle it's the average student so we're always taught we got to get everybody in the middle to teach that level Mm. but we know that when you get into the classroom that's not realistic you have all of these outliers and all these different things so it causes a problem because a lot of some educators don't feel equipped to handle those students so here go ahead and sit them in the back back of the classroom and put them on medication not saying anything is wrong with medication if you want it use it i'm just saying that's what Mm. happens so and it it becomes discouraging so that's what like i said it prompted me to offer these professional developments because Mm. i really feel like anthropology in that area can help you know, elevate and empower teachers. Mm. So I, I kind of wanted to back up a little bit. Um, there was a term that you used earlier, uh, hidden curriculum. Yes, please. Um, can we? <laughs> can you address that? Can you talk about what that is and um, you know what role it played and and what you were looking at? Sure, that's another. Uh, that's another element that's uh, very discreet. It's very subtle. Subtle. So hidden curriculum is not what you teach; it's really how you teach it. It's, you know, the tone, it's the body language, um, it's how you're delivering it. Um, and know, and you, we all know kids watch what we do. They don't listen to what we say. Mm. So if you're a teacher in the classroom and you're saying, okay, uh, for example, everyone, everyone come to class prepared. That's what you have to do. But you come to class and, you know, your lesson, your learning objective is not on a board. You're running around trying to get organized. That's what, the, that's what the students will see. So the hidden curriculum, actually, I'll give you another example. Um, when, if you're teaching a lesson and let's say that the student um, is something controversial and how you're delivering it, maybe they can't relate to what you're saying. I don't know why an example can't come to my head. Um, uh, human evolution biology. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. With an assist from Renee. Yeah. Right. Right. So human evolution biology. You come in and you say, and so a student has an opinion about that, mm-hmm. and the teacher instead of taking it in and saying, you know what, yeah, that I can understand that perspective. No, you're wrong. That's not correct. You don't ever say that, and completely devalues their opinion. Mm. So what is that teaching the student? Really, you're not mm-hmm. really teaching them the concept. You're teaching them that you don't value their opinion, and they have to be quiet in the classroom. Mm. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> you <needed Yeah>. to. <laughs> and so this is, I guess, by doing that, that was what contributed to that exclusion then, the sort of like sit down, be quiet, and just absorb what I'm telling you. <laughs> exactly. And especially for boys, that mm. whole masculinity uh, aspect played, played a huge role. So a lot of times you'll have, um, especially you have some black male administrators that come in and they don't mean to be, but they somehow come off as the disciplinarian of the school. 
So um, you don't know how to be a man. And this is what I found out. This is what one of the boys told me in my research. Um, you don't know how to be a man. We're going to have an all-boys meeting to teach you guys how to be a man. So one of the boys said to me, I know, one of the boys said to me after the meeting, he was like, well, I don't understand. How can he tell me what a man is? He, doesn't, he never even asked me what I thought what a man would be. He just assumed that I didn't know, and he, he didn't say it in these words. I'm translating. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> translating that. Um, he, was, he said um, he, he should at least ask me to what a man is before he's trying to tell me what a man is. Mm. So that, played, that was really interesting because my research really focused on getting the youth perspective rather than pushing my adult perspective onto the youth. Mm. Do you have any more examples from, oh. from interviews about you know, sort of what you were finding and what the boys thought about? these exclusion did they did they view it as exclusion or like how did they view what was happening to them in the school that was and you know what that's such a that's such a great point they didn't view it as exclusion they viewed it as you know this is going to help me later on in life to be successful right Mm. that's how that's how they viewed that um maybe now i have to talk about my positioning now as an anthropologist mm-hmm. maybe because you know i was the adult i was the teacher i was the researcher maybe they felt like they needed to say that to me so who really knows mm-hmm. um but that's what they said hmm. that's what they said um i found that so the school that i did the research at was a majority um african american school majority uh, teachers were african american the school board was too and so um i found that some of the boys they said that you know for example, one of the students said, well, look at this teacher, you know, how she's speaking. She doesn't even like me, but she tries to speak proper, but she speaks so ghetto. And I don't understand. She tries to hide it. I'm not I'm not quoting it exactly. But mm-hmm. um, I talk about this a lot in the conferences that I present. And so a lot of them see, as a teacher, I'll, let's take a step back. As an educator, it's important for you to be authentic. You have to be real because the kids can see right through you. Mm-hmm. If you try to be something that you're not, they will they, they'll lose some respect for you. Mm-hmm. And even as an administrator, it's the same thing. So um, they—that's one of the things that I notice a lot with these with these youth is that they notice it a lot. Mm-hmm. They notice the real you. And so that was that was that a factor then whether they felt like their teachers were authentic or being real with them and absolutely okay because like I said, kids watch what you do. They watch you. Mm-hmm. And that's all a hundred percent. The cultural training we all go through, right? like what it means, what it means to be a man. I mean, I went to the same thing. I came came from a very masculine household and, and community and stuff, so there was things I had to do or act that I don't do now that I don't have to because I'm I'm away from there. But while you're in it, you go like, "Yep, that's how you talk about you know talk about women. That's how you talk about just in general. That's how you talk about things." Yeah. Um, but it seems like teachers too. There's that um, uh, this idea of like you said, speaking proper that that's more educated or more acceptable or more. You know, drop your accent, drop your, you know, use, don't, you don't say ain't, you say, you know, just all those little things. Those are kind of, those are all cultural issues more than anything, right? And, you, and so kind of what you're saying is that some of those alienate some kids while we try to, while, because the education system's set up to kind of streamline one cultural avenue of education. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And that's, and unfortunately, some of the educators and the administrators buy into that. So, and I, I'm a strong advocate for disruptive innovation in education. Mm. Disrupt, disruptive innovation is also a business term, and it's used to describe any kind of um, innovative thinking product that's used to disrupt the current business industry. And I think that needs to take place within the educational system because there, with private and public charter schools, I think that's the perfect place to do it 
because there's so much opportunity there. I'm not even going to, the problems turn into opportunity, but it takes the people, you know, renewing their minds, the administrators and board members renewing their minds to what is possible instead of going the traditional route. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how did you how did you find that these exclusion criteria affected dropout rates over time? Well, that I did not get into. I was more focused on the present. Mm -hmm. But what I can say is that these educational experiences um, that take place in prime because I track them. I ask them. I ask the boys questions from prim primary to secondary school, and what I find out is that they remember, they remember bad experiences more so than they remember positive experiences they remember mm. the teachers they remember everything and so anytime as they pro continue to progress in you know towards secondary education something can trigger them to bring them back to that second grade boy where that teacher said this to them and so that may help that may you know facilitate them help them get it drop out unfortunately mm. um but like i said this is where anthropology comes in because i feel like we have the unique ability and we have the skill sets where we can help clearly state what the problem is but focus on what we can do outcomes let's focus on the solutions and what we can offer and mm -hmm. we can help bring people together and have their conversation in um in an unoffensive way is that a word mm -hmm. not offensive not offended yeah, yeah. inoffensive but no seriously i really i'm such an advocate for anthropology in education i think it's important and it's a great way to apply it as well mm. great um, we're going to pause right there, going to take a, just a short break, um, and then we will be back with Dr. Fairweather. Stay tuned. Hey, Bulls. You're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and the TuneIn app. We're back uh, speaking with Dr. Fairweather about um, uh, exclusion and education, about her consulting company that she started to you know, address those types of issues um, which uh, within the educational system. And so we're actually going to go back now and, and ask her more about her business and what she's doing and how she's doing it and all those interesting questions. Renee, I think you had a question. Yeah, so regarding, um, r regarding the anthropology in motion and use of, like, visual or, or different media to – as part of, like, the, the method or the procedures there – like I'd like, to, I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about how that process works, and then as far as like what what feedback or like how you perceive that that it works, and and uh, yeah, I mean, just tell us about it because I, I think there's a lot of interesting things there. We just need to pick a few out. Okay, so so anthropology in motion um, definitely uses photo voice, where you know I give this, the youth specific questions to answer visually. <clears throat> After that, uh, we get together, we, we reconvene, and we analyze the photos. Okay, so why did you take this picture, and what does it mean to you, and what do you see here? And then um, as a group, they develop answers, and then individually they come up with a statement regarding the photos that they took. And then the ultimate goal is to have those photos um, become a community exhibit, like a photo gallery, for the public to see what the kids took. So is it kind of like the photo is like a free list, and then they sort it into themes? That's one method, yes. Okay. That's one method that you can use. Um, what I really like to expose the, the youth to, um, of course, is photo ethics, taking them to different galleries. Photo, uh, um, what's the museum? The Photographic Arts Museum. They have great galleries for the, for the youth to go to. 
and to get them used to the idea that they too are artists and they too are scientists and they too can be researchers. Mm -hmm. The discussion part is important for social emotional development, which is which is actually really big in education now, social emotional education, um, because it helps to helps people, even adults, through conversation, you know, um, reflect. Think about your positioning in a community. Think about your positioning in the world and what you can contribute to it. Mm. And um, how did you start to make connections with the schools that you now provide services for? Oh, that's a great question. I was um, when I started um, my dissertation research, I was already working in a charter school, mm -hmm. and so it was just basically networking. Okay. You know, you're an anthropologist. What is that? And so it had turned into this, this. I'm also this, and I'm also this. So. Um, so it kind of just came from there. So how much marketing, I guess, is is in that now that you're now that you're fully within your business? So I'm sure there's a lot of marketing. Absolutely, that goes with that, right? but I'm a, I'm an advocate for what is that? If you build it, they will come. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, like I said, the professional developments for the team right now, I have seven that I've developed, mm -hmm. and they are they are needed. And I've developed they're science based. Um, mm -hmm. Private and public charter schools would definitely benefit from these for their teachers. Um, Do you mean seven different types of workshops? Seven different types of workshops. Okay. And it's different. Typically, a professional development is like either a day or a week of intensive training. And like, okay, okay, that's it. You learn what you learn. Go apply it in your classroom. You're done. Mm -hmm. Instead, I'm offering a method where I'm doing a workshop, and then after that, we're coming together to do a lesson plan to see if you can implement these practices. And then I'm observing you uh, practice these with your students, and I'm giving you feedback. So it's an ongoing process. I'm not going to leave you alone. Mm. But it's important that you it lets you you become one with it. And I think that's what I'm going to get his name incorrect. The Pedagogy of Hope, mm. Paulo Freire. Anyone? Mm. No. You Familiar know? with it? Yeah. He well, that's one of the things that he spoke about is just having people just you know become more involved and become co-creators of their own practice, and it, it helps them stay with them longer. And that's theory. Mm. And that's what shows that theory is important because I applied that to that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> theory is important, y'all. It, it was all worth it. It was all yeah. worth it. <laughs> uh, so uh, what advice would you have for an anthropology student wanting to, I guess, go in the same direction, uh, maybe not in education specifically, but wanting to, to start a business or be an entrepreneur or apply their skills in maybe an unconventional manner? Definitely start a business plan. Mm. Absolutely figure out how you can translate your dissertation into a business plan because it's part of the application method. Um, mm. Definitely get someone, um, network with someone who is in a different discipline than yours but is kind of closely related to the business that you want to start. So if you're in legal anthropology, get with a lawyer, you know, that mm. type of thing. Um, and get a mentor. Absolutely. You need mentors mm. for sure. Mm. Mm. You need mentors. Okay. Okay, um, quick question on mm -hmm. that. On the consulting, since you follow them through, does that make you more expensive than one of those traditional models? And is that is that kind of been a barrier? Um, no, because no, no, because it's really per per person. So that's that's my fee. It's per person. Um, it doesn't make me more expensive because this is the thing. I I believe in outcomes. So I sit with the teacher. It's a process. I sit with the teacher first, and I need the educator, and I need to know where your head is. 
Are you serious about this? Mm-hmm. What are your goals? What is your vision statement for your classroom? And that's really the first question that I ask. What, is your vi- what do you want your class to look like? Because once I can get them focused and show them that I'm not playing, Let's do this because I don't have a lot of time. My goal is for a month and out. I want to see how well you can implement these ideas and we can keep moving. And, and so that's important, right, because if there's no buy-in, then there's like, what's the point, right? And that's exactly right. I don't want educators to feel like I'm, this is being forced on them by their mm-hmm. administrators. They have to really want to do it to say, you know what, I need to perfect my craft as a teacher of these exceptional students, and um, I, I really could use your help. So it's not necessarily me telling them what to do. We're co-creating knowledge together mm-hmm. for them to implement in their classroom. Do, do administrate, like, so if you go to a school, then the administrator would pay for you just to go to one teacher? Yes. The administration will do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Okay. Yes. One teacher. And so I know, may, I know we'll probably run out of time, but what I'm finding is that with private and public charter schools, and this is a whole separate issue, a lot of times you'll get educators who are coming in from a different industry or who have just started teaching. So they're not really too, they don't have that much experience. So my professional development is really geared toward those educators who really need that one-on-one in the classroom help with lesson plan development and that type of thing to help elevate their skills. Hmm. Well, that's, that's very insightful. Um, but we have, I think we have time for like just one more question, okay. which actually might be a, it may be a bigger question than we have time for, but maybe we'll take a crack at it. Is, um, so how does balancing family responsibilities mm. fit into being a professional, professional anthropologist, consultant, entrepreneur? Um, okay. <laughs> Answer that question carefully. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, actually it gives me perspective. It helps me stay grounded. Um, it reminds me that maybe sometimes what I'm talking is foolishness. So I have to ask him questions so, you know, he, my son can be honest with me about what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, it takes a lot of priority and a lot of focus. So, you know, a lot of times, even as graduate students, we procrastinate a lot. There's no time for that. We have to prioritize our time properly. That's that's what I do every Friday from 2 to 4. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fun to procrastinate, but I can't I can't procrastinate. Hmm. Okay. Um yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing that cuz I mean, we know that balancing life responsibilities with academic responsibilities can be a challenge sometimes. So, um thank you for sharing your insight. And that's actually all of the time that we have um, for this hour of, of the show, we're running out of time, um, even though I'm sure we could probably continue on and, and talk for a while longer. Um, but, Dr. Fairweather, thank you for volunteering your time to come and speak with us today. Um, we really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you. Um, and um, so we have another guest coming up for the next hour, so make sure to stay tuned for that. Uh, we'll be taking about a 10- to 15-minute break, um, and then we will be back. So um, stay tuned. <laughs> 